If you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Father, we pray that you'll speak to our hearts. We pray that you'll take us to where we need to be. Oh, Father, you know how in recent years I have been just really conscious of the fact that uh, uh, nobody needs to hear anything I have to say. But we have to hear everything that you have to say. So, Lord, take us to where we need to be in Jesus' name. Amen. We're picking up the, uh, our study in the Gospel of John. We've taken a little bit of a break from it, and I'm going to break again next week, but we'll, we'll keep progressing here. We're picking up our study in the Gospel of John uh, just to remind us that there are four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, the four Gospels, and they all take a different angle, a different perspective on who Jesus is. The Gospel of John, the declaration there is that Jesus is God. Uh, but the secondary implication, or as you read through the Gospel of John, you, you get, you get, you're not into it far before you get the, get the point that John is driving toward decision. It is a specific decision. And that decision is believe. 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 And that's the reason why we've entitled the series Believe. Now, I need to set the, the message up because we're going into a major section of Scripture here that is called the Upper Room Discourse. That's John chapters 13 through 16. Some would include 17, the high priestly prayer. Uh, That is the upper room discourse. Now, what's important about that? I believe that every follower of Jesus Christ should major in and seek to master two of Jesus' sermons. One is a sermon on the mount, and the other one is the upper room discourse. The sermon on the mount emphasizes how kingdom people should live, how we should live. And I think every believer needs to do a study on the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. But I think secondly, every believer needs to do a serious study on John 13 through 16. I would include 17 there uh, because this, this is Jesus distilling and summarizing everything he taught his disciples in principal form over that three-and-a-half-year period of time. And it talks about the essence of transformative, victorious Christianity. Now, having said all of that, uh, I've entitled the message today, Transforming Humility. Transforming Humility. It's interesting to me where Jesus chooses to start and what he does in setting up this summary session this seminar session, so to speak, with his disciples. He doesn't begin with didactic teaching. He doesn't primarily begin with stating a bunch of propositions. He doesn't begin with some checklist of things that they need to do. But he begins with a stunning, shocking thing that sets the trajectory and causes them to want to hear everything that he has to say. He begins by a discussion on humility, on humility. Uh, Who was it? Samuel Bringle, who was an early uh, Salvation Army official, uh, was once introduced, and he was an incredible orator and speaker, he was once introduced as the great Dr. Bringle. Well, after his lecture, he goes back home, and he later wrote in his diary, quote, if I appear great in in their eyes, 
The Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him. And helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me. But I am so concerned that he uses me and that it is not of me the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. Pray for me that I never lose sight of that. That I never lose sight of that. You see, the strength of pride must eventually surrender to the power of humility. Let me say that again. The strength of pride will always surrender to the power of humility. That's the reason why you have to embrace humility or else you're going to be broken. Willful, proud people don't end up well. Every proud person, every proud person will be broken. Every last one. In fact, the trajectory of human history says that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility is not optional. Humility is required. To be distinctively Christian means that the umbrella characteristic of authentic Christianity in terms of what people see is humility. It's humility. But I I think I'm going to say some things that might surprise you because I think the way we think about humility is not exactly, not exactly what the Bible teaches about about humility. Uh, True humility grows out of our relationship with God. And I actually think in context and Jesus beginning this uproom discourse and the things that he wants to say and remind them of, uh, this is this is sort of like the the wallpaper, the screensaver to what what he's really saying, that true humility really, really grows as a result of our walk and relationship with God. The closer you get to him, the less you ought to be preoccupied with yourself. The closer, the more you walk with God the less concerned you are about the affirmation, adulation of other people. You can't get close to God and hold up your resume at the same time. Humility grows out of relationship with God. Now, sadly, too many of us are seduced by a spirit of competition, comparison, and criticism. That's the stuff of the world in which we live. So in many circles, what I'm talking about today is just like, you're nuts. You're absolutely crazy. You know, this is a competitive world. You got to be better than. You got to pull this puppy off. You got to be a winner. You got to be sharp. You got to do all this stuff. Now, by the way, let me say parenthetically, humility does not mean the lack of pursuit of excellence. That doesn't mean that at all. However, I, I, I want to I I help us understand something. Competition and comparison and criticism are all evidences of pride. The spirit of pride. And too many of us get seduced into that. 
And that becomes a primary motivation. Those three things become primary motivational homepages for what we do. And it's not good. You might be surprised that I, 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 I included criticism in that list. Because what I found, what I found is that people who are critical, now there is healthy criticism, don't get me wrong, but constructive criticism points to solution. It is not just a celebration of what you did wrong. But people who are critical, people are critical, it's evidence of pride. It's evidence of saying that, you know, I got to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. Uh, it is, and, and by the way, often, often it's a manifestation of an unhealthy perfectionism. And I would say, so by the way, don't call yourself a perfectionist. That's not a compliment. That really is not a compliment. Uh, perfectionism is idolatry. So to be negatively critical is, is an expression often an expression of pride is an expression of, I know better than you do. And so what's up with that? What's up with that? So humility, humility says we need to go in the opposite direction. Now, again, getting back in context here, Jesus begins this uproom discourse by this astonishing, stunning thing that he does. It is absolutely amazing. And the way to understand, I... I, I uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, it, it, it unfolds itself. These two paragraphs unfolds itself in two ways. First, there's the illustration and there's the application. The illustration is given to us in verses 1 through 11. The illustration, I would put it this way, is to live like Jesus or parentheses humility. The application is given to us in verses 12 through 20. And that is to lead like Jesus. I'm going to tip my hand there, though. In the Bible, to lead is not the same way as we think of leadership. Leading in the Bible has to do with serving. Leading, the word leadership in the Bible, has to do with servanthood. And the only reason why you lead in the scriptures is because God is trusting you to serve those people, to serve his assignment, and to empower the people that you serve. It is never about the leader in the Bible, ever about the leader in the Bible, never about the person. It's always about stewardship. It's always about service. And so if you're not willing to serve, don't ever look for a position to lead. Because if you're not willing to serve and you're looking for a position to lead, you're going to be a head case. You're going to mess up a whole lot of people. So you live like Jesus and then you lead like Jesus. And this is what he projects at the very beginning of this seminar that summarizes everything that he taught them. First of all, you live like Jesus. That's verses 1 through 11. And I think that there, there are three movements here. And this is masterful because this really is an exposition on, on humility. The first statement I like to make under this banner is that humility really has to do with confident awareness. Now, hang in there with me. Confident awareness. Listen to how all of this is introduced. Verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, here you have it, Jesus knowing 
that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. I'm going to park it right here. The way this is all set up is an explanation of what biblical humility is all about. You see, humility in the Bible is the exact opposite of what you might think. Humility in the Bible is not the celebration of inferiority. Humility in the Bible is not the celebration of insecurity. In the Bible, you cannot, the Bible teaches that you cannot be truly humble unless you're confident. Yeah, I'm not playing with words here. I'm not playing with words. True humility is based upon confidence. It's based upon confidence. It's based upon who you are. True humility in the Bible is lodged in a secure identity. This stuff that we pass off as humility, you might just be looking for the affirmation of others. You might be looking for the approval of other people. You might be looking for them, they're, 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 them saying, you're validated by me. That's not true biblical humility. That's nothing more than the people pleasing. In fact, it's idolatry. You want people to validate you. You're looking for that. You're looking for belonging. You're looking for all of these things. That is not biblical humility. Biblical humility extends from security. It extends from who you are. You're looking at me strange here, but if you look over in Philippians chapter 2, beginning there, when, 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 when Paul says, laying aside or considering others more important than yourself, he uses the illustration of Jesus. And he talks about when Jesus departed from heaven. He, he was equal with God and he didn't have to fight with that. He knew what he had. He knew where he belonged so he could lay it aside. And he's doing the same thing here in this text. This is not the celebration of inferiority. This is a statement of identity. This is who I am. Healthy humility is a supreme statement of confidence. Not self-reliance, but confidence in my identity. Who I am. Who I am. Jesus knew. What did he know? It says right here in the text. He knew four things. This is before he did the act. He knew these four things. Number one, he knew his hour had come, meaning that he was headed to the cross. This is why he was born. He had a date with death, with the payment of man's sin. He knew that. What else did he know? He also knew that what, what he had. Verse 3 says, that the Father had given all things in his hands. He wasn't struggling for validation from God, from God or anybody else. He knew what he had. That God had given it to him. He knew he had it. Wasn't struggling to find it. The third thing that he knew is that he knew where he came from. Fourthly, he knew where he's going. This statement of knowledge. Do you know your position in Christ? Do you know how secure you are in him? Do you know your inheritance? Do you know that you don't need ultimately the validation of other people? No, it's nice. Certainly we should encourage one another. I'm not talking about that. But ultimately, your identity is not wrapped up with what other people say about you or in their validation. And if you start serving hunting down affirmation, 
hunting down validation, hunting down approval, it never ends well. It never ends well. Because the first time somebody ignores you, they don't give you an attaboy or they miss, they miss, you know, whatever they do, just forget about you, this kind of thing. You're in a fetal position. It just doesn't work. And Jesus begins by modeling this to us. You say that was Jesus. Well, yeah, it was. But as we'll read in the text, he says, you got to do the same thing that I did. You got to be what I am. And so it begins with this supreme sense of confidence. He knew who he was. And so because of that, there's this selfless service. Notice how he sets this up. This is the reason why when you read your Bible, always read it in context. You'll jump down to what Jesus did, but you, you'll disconnect it from the, uh, from, from the security of who he was. So verses 4 and 5, what did he do? After knowing all of this, and by the way, this, he just, it just continues. Because he knew where he was going, he knew what he had. Verse 4 says, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began washing his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Sometimes these stories, uh, we, we know them, and we, 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 uh, because we know them, we kind of like skip over stuff. But this is an amazing thing that Jesus does here. The particulars of what he does is is tremendously important. Tremendously important. Verse 4 tells us, you say, well, what's with this taking off of the outer garment? Did he strip down to his underwear? What was was this stuff all about? Well, no, he didn't strip down to his underwear. And the disciples, they understood this. We don't get it because we're not back in that culture. But they understood this. Let me back up and say this. That if you were a house of some substance during the time of Christ and you had servants, the washing of feet was the job of the lowliest of all the servants. There was a pecking order. And the servants in the household who did menial tasks, the dirty jobs, they would not wear their outer garments. They had clothes underneath that that they weren't afraid to get messed up. So what does Jesus do? This is a powerful visual. These disciples are there and they know all this stuff. What Jesus does in essence, he takes off his outer garment and he adopts the dress of a lowly menial servant and he did what servants did. What does this say? It says to us that he did not draw attention to his rights and privileges. He had them. But he didn't draw attention. See, humble people don't have to do that. Humble folks don't have to draw attention to their rights and privileges. They have them. They know that they have them. They're there. But they don't have to let you know and let everybody else know who they are, what they accomplished, where they're from, the degrees behind their name. They, They don't have to do that. Why? Because they're greater than what they have. They know that they have it. Because they know that they have it, they don't have to lead with it. They just don't have to lead with it. It's there. It's kind of like, you know, I'll never forget that. I don't know why I just thought about this. My youngest son, 
uh, was a phenomenal baseball player, and I uh, told you all, he was my early retirement program, and then he decided to go into ministry. <laughs> but I remember as a freshman, you know, everybody heard about Brendan Luritz coming up, and he, uh, you know, and he was a little nervous there uh, as a freshman. He was trying to make the varsity team and this kind of thing, and uh, I'll never forget taking him through that first, you're going through that first practice. I said, Dad, I don't know, man, you know, just as I said, hey, son, here's the deal. Good meat makes its own gravy. Know who you are, do what you do. Know who you are, do what you do. And let what's done, let what's done declare who you are. Jesus knew he had it. So he didn't have to draw attention to himself. He didn't have to do that. He thought, he thought more of others. What Jesus knew determined what he did. The Father had put all things in Jesus' hands, and yet Jesus picked up a towel and basin. See, here's the point. I guess I've said it already. His humility was not born out of poverty, but out of riches. Don't get that wrong. True humility is not born out of inadequacy. True humility is not born out of deficiencies. True humility is not some crazy codependent relationship. True humility is born out of security. True humility is born out of your riches. So because of that, Jesus could think less of himself and more of others. Again, because he knew who, who he was. He knew who he was. He wasn't looking to others to give him what he already knew that he had. Now, here lies a little bit of a problem, however. There, there is this perceived indignity. When Jesus does this, now we bust on Peter, but I happen to believe the text doesn't say this, but I happen to believe that Peter was probably speaking for everybody else. Everybody else felt this. Peter just had the chutzpah to say it. So the text says here, look at here, verse, verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Uh, I, I think that's a little weak there. I mean, it, it is a question, but I, I think it's a statement. I think Peter's making a statement. What, what, what are you doing? Don't do that. You, you wash my feet? Why are you doing that? Don't do that. Peter was indignant. And I think the other disciples were indignant. Don't do that. Peter was the one who said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're, you, you, don't do that. Come on, man. Don't do that for me. You know, I, 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 people treat me very nice, very kind. I mean, you, you all treat me. You're kind to me, Karen and myself. You treat me with, I mean, very kind, very nice. When I travel and speak these days, you know, my son tells me, he's, he's crazy. My oldest son, Brian, he goes, Dad, you ain't on the ch Chitlin circuit no more. So oh, come on, buddy. Uh, but when I travel and speak, you know, by and large, people treat me so nice. It's a little nauseating sometimes. It really is. You know, 
I got a rollerboard. The dude meets me there, and he wants to, oh, let me carry you back. It's a rollerboard. I can roll the thing, okay? And plus, plus my wife, and she was here, what are you? Come on, pick up the thing. And they get, they get, sometimes people get offended because you won't let them do certain things for you. Well, flip this around. Peter understands that he's Lord. Well, why, why, tell me, why you do this? We can do this. Thomas, Bartholomew, you know, Andrew, John, Matthew, get some water. Jesus, you don't have to. Don't, we, we can do this. Don't do this. Well, in typical Peter fashion, though, when Jesus answers him and the lights come on, he goes to the other extreme. So Jesus responds to Peter, answered him, says, what, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but after it, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I can imagine Jesus. Come on, man. Jesus answered him. Look, buddy, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, that has caused some Bible scholars a little bit of a heartburn, this expression. What does he mean by that? If I do not wash it, is he saying that the washing of feet in and of itself is, some, is, is, is the essence of that is cleansing? Uh, no, I don't think he's what he's saying to that. However, I wouldn't move too far away from that. I think what, what he means by it, he, 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 the, the, the whole foot washing is a symbol of what would take place on Calvary and the cleansing that would be secured by the cross. This is foreshadowing what I'm going to take place. Peter, you, you don't have any idea what this is connected to. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, you know, you know, you know, uh, uh, basically Jesus is saying, unless the Lamb of God has taken away a person's sin, he or she can have no relationship with me. Well, Peter gets the message at this point. Peter gets the message. Peter gets the message. And I think basically what Jesus was also saying is, look, the message was more important than my image. What this means is more important than how you perceive me. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. What this means is more important than how you perceive me, than what you think about me. See, we serve out of a right motive. We serve because this is right to do. And the message that we send as servants is more important than our personal image. If you're serving to manage your image, stop it. Don't serve anymore. Until you can get that straightened out. It's not about managing your image. It's about the message that is being sent when we, when we serve. Well, when Jesus straightens out, Peter goes to, he goes to the other extreme and he starts saying, uh, Lord, verse 9, not my feet only, but also my hands and my, my head. And Jesus said, I ain't here to give you a shower or bath, buddy. Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed doesn't need to be that. Uh, you're, you're already clean. Don't, don't go there. So the very first thing is that we find this incredible model. And what Jesus is saying is that I want you to live this way, that is, bathed in and mired in authentic humility. That humility is, is, is an expression of confidence. Confidence in who you are, confident in the fact that you belong to him, 
Your, your source of hope and your source of strength and your source of affirmation is not found in what fellow human beings can give you, but it's found in your identity in Christ. And then he says, okay, here's the application. I want you to lead and serve like Jesus. I want you to lead and serve this way. And that's what verses 12 through 20 is all about. Now, I think he's saying three things again underneath this banner. Number one is that you've got to model the destination. Verse 12, he says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, uh, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. I, for so I am. I am your teacher and Lord. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. You see, at at its heart, at its heart, at its heart, humility and servanthood is a portrait of a desired destination. That's what it's really all about. He says, okay, I've done this for you, and the reason why I've done this for you is because you, 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 you need to model and do the same thing. It's not about you. In fact, it's never been about you. It's all about what I want to do through you. In other words, I think when, you know, uh, when, when Jesus washed their feet, he was actually sending three messages. Number one, it was a display of love. That's how the whole section begins. It's a display of love. Shh, a display of love. It was a symbol of cleansing. Point to the one who can cleanse all of us. Thirdly, it was a model of service. This is how you go about your Christianity. Do this. Don't fight and battle for position or, or fight and battle for recognition or Look for somebody to do for you what only God can do for you. No, this, it's all about love. It's all about cleansing. And it's all about service. And we're to be characterized. And he says, do these things. You do this. So we're to be characterized by sacrificial love and service that is born out of compassion and identification with others. That, that's what we're to be characterized by. Not by a bunch of egomaniacs. But this is what we're going to be characterized by. Listen. Learn how to let God meet your needs and stop looking inordinate to, inordinately to people to do that. Yeah, I'm going to say this and it might offend some people. Some of us need to stop being so needy. Did you hear what I said? Some of us need to stop being so needy. I know that's counterintuitive. Yes, do we need one another? We do. But stop treating other people as if they're your savior. We can only point people to the savior. We can only point them to the one 
who can meet their need. And some of us are angry as spouses and we're upset with parents and we're upset with other people because we're expecting them to do for us what only God can do for us. They can't do it. They just can't do it. And we waste our entire lives going down that bunny trail. I didn't plan on saying that here, but we waste our time. I've met people who, who are frustrated their whole lives. They're angry. They're bitter. They, they can't get beyond themselves. They stand in their own way because, yeah, they have hurts. They have pains, but they've committed idolatry. They keep trying to get other people to do what mama didn't do or should have done or say this or they don't have forgiveness in their hearts and it blocks them from authentic humility. And I think what Jesus is saying, really, it's not a stretch in the text. I think he was saying to the, to, to the disciples, hey, get past yourself. Get over you. Get over you. You can only have sacrificial love when you know you've been loved. Okay, I love you. Passion and identification. And then he tells them, do what you know. Do what you know. That's verses 16 to 17. The ellipsis, the ellipsis here is like, hey, you've been with me. You've seen this stuff. This is not brand new. Verse 16 says, truly, truly, I say to you, your servant is no greater than his master. You've heard this before. Nor is a master messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's not like you don't know. Crawford, it's not like you don't know. You know these things. Do these things. And I'm going to click off five implications here from these verses, just real quickly. And I'm on, I'm, I'm on, on my way to the runway here. Number one, one of the ways pride manifests itself is by refusing to take the lower or lesser role. By refusing to take the lower or lesser role. That's one of the ways that pride will manifest itself in our lives. There's some things that we won't do. One of the things I'm grateful to God about that is years ago, I, 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 I can't go into all the circles with the lack of time, but I came to a conviction of my own heart and life. One of the things that I remind myself of all the time, sort of a rule of thumb for me, I will never ask anybody who reports to me to do anything that I have not done or that I'm not willing to do. Ever. Ever. I won't go down that road. Because you don't use people. And pride. Pride says, uh, look, there's some things I ain't going to do. I think it's very dangerous things for Christians to say what they would not do. Even as it comes to service. The second implication is that no follower of Christ has the right to think that he or she is exempt from the task that Jesus willingly and joyfully did. Now think about it. Think about this. You know whose feet he also washed? Judas. And he knew that Jesus, Judas was going to betray him. Listen, if you serve Christ... Serving others is not a selective thing. You, you have to serve those people who will betray you. 
That's right. Now, listen, y'all are wonderful. I'm going to say this, but I I just need to be transparent with it. Y'all are wonderful. This church is great. I mean, I just love the folks here. You guys are are kinder to me, more encouraging to me than I really deserve. And I'm grateful to God to be a part of this body here. But let's just face it. There are a few scud missiles in this church. You You know, there's people who have said some dumb things to me. I've said some dumb things in the past myself. But you know what I've learned? You don't choose who you serve. Some of those same folks who have been hurting, I can't say, well, you know, they said this, hey, let one of the other step. No, 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 no. You don't choose that. Jesus did not do that. And he's modeling this to them. This idiot sold him out for a few shekels. And he knew that was going to happen. But he loved him anyway. You serve. The third implication is by becoming servant, a servant, Jesus did not push us down. He lifted us up. He lifted us up. This is the reason why you have to be secure in who you are. Because your role as a servant is not to bring people just to your level or slightly below. Your role as a servant is not to think more important, more, more highly than you ought to think, but, but, but to consider others more uh, better than yourself. And so he didn't push others down. He lifted us up. He dignified sacrifice and service. G.K. Chesterton said, a really great man is one who makes others feel great. You, your, your role as a servant is not just to make people feel good, but to make them feel great. I love what Cliff, Cliff Robinson said last night. He's the uh, senior vice president in charge of all the operations for Chick-fil-A. And he explained the second mile service at Chick-fil-A. We don't just want people to be pleased and, and, and happy. We, we want them to be raving fans. So what do we do? We go the extra mile. And that's what biblical servant is all about. Anybody that hangs with you, you want them to feel valued and important and great. Fourth implication is that God blesses us not for what we know, but for, how, for, for our responses to what we know. That's what he says in verse 17. If you notice, stuff, do it, man. Do it, do it. Listen, we, we're Bible church people, but this is, a, this is a fair knock on us. Fair knock on us. Some of us are more thrilled about our accuracy and our insights into truth and how accurate we are about the truth that we know. You know, I believe that that's important. That's very important. But that don't mean anything. In the words of the late Dr. Howard Hendricks, truth was not given to satisfy your curiosity. It was given to transform our lives. That's what it's really all about. And what Jesus is saying here, look, I'm about ready to summarize all this stuff, but I got to tell you something. Hey, you you got to live in the verb position, man. You got to get after this stuff. So if you know it, do it. And number five, real joy comes when we serve others in the name of Christ. Real joy. You know, you know what? One of the things that impressed me last night, I was, <laughs> as I sort of, wandered around, and I was looking at our volunteers. I was impressed by the joy on the faces of everybody. I was moved by that. Uh, the, you know, just the privilege of serving and the, being that community together. 
The fact that we could celebrate one another. That, that gives you real joy. But check it out. The joy is found not, not in the sense that what you do is your identity. The joy is found that this is your identity. And it's in his approval. So the joy is found in doing what is right. And not necessarily in the responses of other people. Again, that's the reason why humility is mired in confidence. In confidence. And then the final thing is that here, Jesus is saying that there is real power in submission. For the sake of time, I won't read uh, all these verses, but I want to jump down to verse 20. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I think in context, what he's saying is this. Look, there, there, there is power in your submission. Do right by people. Do right by them. Bless them. Submit to me. And you will know the fact in your heart that I sent you. I am with you. God is with you. And there'll be a supernatural aura about your life and about what you do. About what you do. Freedom comes. Freedom really comes when you're detached and you know where your source of affirmation and hope and security comes from. You can give. You can bless. You can go about your business. You become a channel. You're not looking for people to give you what only God can give you. Serve. Never forget that to be distinctively Christian means we belong to the sorority and the fraternity of the town and the basin. That's who we are. We're Jesus' hands, we're Jesus' feet, we're his eyes, we're his ears. But more importantly, where's heart? Where's heart? Let's stand there. There is something sweet about this church. When Karen and I were making the decision about where, which church should we decide on, and there was three churches. Uh, that had extended calls. You know why we chose fellowship? You know why? Honestly, it had a lot to do with what I just said this morning. 
This was not the largest of the churches. But there was a sweetness and is a sweetness about our people here. There was a, there was a heart and a caring that's here. And fellowship, we've got to protect that. We've got to protect that. And that's one of the things I'm, I shouldn't say, I just talked about pride. I've got to think of another word. It's one of the things I'm proud about in terms of our church. But we need to excel still more. Don't cave in to the narcissism, self-centered nonsense, the sickness of our culture. Don't cave into that. Don't believe the lie that you're the center of attention. Jesus is. Jesus is. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, you can be right now. All you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I turn for my sin and I trust you. I'm going to ask you to do two things. For those of us who are followers, and maybe you've been serving for less than noble reasons, I've been there. The one thing I'm going to ask you to do is to repent. Tell the Lord that you have been looking to people too much to give you what only he can give you. Repent of that. Maybe you've been hurt. And you, you, you sort of shrunk back. I want you to repent of self-pity. Repent of that. They crucified Jesus. Judas, Judas betrayed him. I want you to repent of that. And the second thing I want us to do is that this afternoon, sometime, get on your knees and open up John 13, 1 through 20. And read it out loud. God, help me. To live like Jesus. And to lead like him. There's too much of Crawford still around in my heart and life. And I find myself praying about this stuff. I find myself praying about it a lot. Because I don't want to grow old and be some little irritating, entitled snot. We need to be givers. Amen? Father, thank you for your love and mercy, and thank you for your grace, and thank you for what you've done in our lives, and thank you for this, wow, this astonishing, stunning thing that Jesus did. Lord God, forgive us for getting upset and ticked off because we were overlooked. We didn't get a thank you note. We didn't get asked to do certain things. Lord, will you help us to walk away from that stuff and realize because we serve a big God, we have to be big people. Lead us and direct us and guide us and continue, Lord Jesus, to stir up the spirit of service in our church. May people who come in contact with us come in contact with the love of the Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.